Well, welcome again to uh, Rotherham Evangelical Church. Hope that your, your day and your week has been good and has gone well. Uh, what's the most valuable thing that you can think of buying? If I was to give you like a really big shed load of cash, what, what's the most valuable thing you could think of, of buying? What could you not buy however much money you had? What is priceless for you? Well, there are some things that are priceless. Uh, the experts on that place where all experts reside, the World Wide Web, I had a look to, uh, to see what they might say on the subject. So I took, looked at them and they suggested weddings, that weddings were, were priceless. You know, what was happening? Okay, okay. Um, some kinds of antiques, you know, one-off Ming vase, you know, the one that when you're dusting, you hope you don't knock off the shelf, those. Um, various experiences, capturing a perfect photo at a perfect moment on your camera. Because the advertisers on MasterCard had a whole series of, of things, you know, you remember those adverts where they said, you know, this is £5 and this is £10, but this is priceless. That included things like Feeling at home, that that is priceless. Okay, that's good. Uh, being a hero, or being the hero for the first time, that that was priceless. Uh, when people understand you. Well, we're going to look at one of God's priceless gifts today. Uh, so turn with me to uh, page 1101 in the Church Bible. And the passage Lisa just read for us. And we're going to look at what God's got in store for us there. Before we do that, let me just pray uh, before we kick off. Father, Father, I pray that you'd hide me behind your cross today. There's nothing of me that people need to hear about today, but there's everything of you. So I pray that that would take place, that your word would be clear, that you would stir up every heart, encourage every soul, teach us all, help us to experience the presence of your Holy Spirit here today and draw us closer to Jesus. Amen. So what's going on in this passage uh, that Lisa just read for us here in Acts chapter 8? We're continuing on this unstoppable mission we've been looking at since uh, back in the autumn, uh, I guess. And uh, we're in a passage now where uh, Richard took us through uh, Stephen and Stephen's death uh, last week and his his great sermon there. And we're now, uh, Luke... Uh, who's writing this, is now swapping from from one of the seven people who who we talked about in Acts chapter 6, which was Stephen, to another one, Philip. And the the rest of chapter 8 here is really talking about Philip and and what's going on there. Uh, That's Philip, not Philip the Apostle. There was an apostle called Philip. This is Philip, who's one of these seven chaps who was looking after the widows that we talked about in Acts Acts 6. And the first part of the, the passage, Acts 8, 1, 2, Stephen's just, just died. And, and the narrative is picking up with Philip. And this is where we're picking it up today. And the first thing you'll see happening is persecution. And the... Thank you, Jai. There's a slide there. Persecution. 
Look with me again in verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So it says it's a great persecution. This is a big persecution. Maybe bigger than all the stuff they've been going through already and the other things going on in Acts, the other persecutions. All the disciples, apart from the apostles, are scattered. And he says that persecution broke out on that day, on that very day when Stephen had, had died. How would you feel if that was you, if you were in that church where you're having to leave behind the leaders of that church? You're having to just leave. Where were you going to go to? Who's going to lead you if you're, if you're leaving your leaders behind in Jerusalem? Are you thinking, well, is this the end of the church? Is this the end of, of this, this thing that's been happening? Did Stephen die for nothing? This, this, this guy who, who you know, paid this price? Has this unstoppable mission actually been stopped? Questions I'm sure that were going through their, going through their minds. And one of the things I'm aware of, I think when I read a passage like this, is that we know the ending. We know the next bit. We know the next part of the story. But they didn't. They were at this point in the, in the story. And they didn't know what happened later on in Acts. But the apostles stayed. The apostles stayed behind in Jerusalem. There was still work to be done in Jerusalem. God's work had to be done there. And just what a blessing it was that all these other disciples who had to go out had already been equipped with the gospel, had already been equipped with the apostles' teaching before they left. And before they left, some of them, still on that same day, Stephen was buried and was mournful. Again, that's Jewish tradition. You want to uh, bury people on the same day that they died. And so Stephen was buried by godly men. That's significant because the Jews thought Stephen was a, a blasphemer, the council, and so the normal way they thought about it is that godly men wouldn't have wanted to go near his body and to bury him. Luke records for us that it was godly men who buried him and who mourned deeply for him. But Saul, oh boy, Saul, here comes Saul. He's been holding their coats when Stephen was being stoned and now he's stirred up. He's stirred up and he's ready. He's going to persecute this church. He's been riled up. His, his blood pressure's up. He's feeling, feeling all righteous. And he's going out and he's destroying the church. Or he's trying to destroy the church. It says there, verse 5, Saul began to just destroy the church. Going from house to house. There's a, there's a sense here when you read it of brutality, of, of uh, suddenness and, and aggression and a lack of mercy. Here's a guy who's really going for it. I mean, he's not holding back. Holding women off to prison. Just pulling them out of their houses. And praise God, you know, so often with the church, the persecution helps it to grow. A bit like when you you prune a fruit tree. You know, you prune a fruit tree back and it helps it to grow and it gets more fruit, but... It doesn't feel that at the time. It just feels like persecution. Even, go back to Stephen, even persecution to the point of death. And we're looking back, we recognise it for what it is. But at the time, it's, it's 
pain and struggle and questions and hurt and, and people being locked up. It, it, because we know the story later on, we can sometimes downplay that kind of suffering and the, and the stuff that's going on there. But praise God. Praise God that the believers persevered. That's the next slide from Jai. Perseverance. In Acts 8, excuse me, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said that they would be his witnesses in Samaria. They didn't realize how that was going to happen. They didn't realize that they were going to be persecuted and and moved out into the world. I'm sure they didn't understand that, but here they were, fleeing from persecution, and Philip, specifically, goes to Samaria. It also says, if you notice here in Acts, it says that those who have been scattered preach the word wherever they went. So wherever they went, there's a certain sense of wandering, of, of moving around perhaps a few different places, perhaps not staying in one place too long. And I guess that ties up with the idea of persecution. You know, you're trying to keep on the move a little bit. But certainly we see Philip um, in Jerusalem later on and in Caesarea after this point. So we know he's moving around as well. But at this point he goes down to a city in Samaria. We don't know the name of the city. We know the Samaria is north of Jerusalem. So we know Philip's gone from Jerusalem, he's gone north, and he's gone to Samaria. And he's coming into this part of Samaria, and he gets there, and he finds this bloke called Simon. And Simon's a bit of a spiritual leader. He's got this, this movement thing going on. And so Philip's coming in, and he might have been felt a little intimidated by that. You know, he feels a bit, oh, okay, he's got this thing going on. Philip, praise God, just gets on with it. Tells people about Jesus. If I'm being honest, I suspect that sometimes I would feel intimidated if I was talking to someone who I knew was already uh, following another religion or another spiritual leader. But fabulous. Philip just gets in there and tells people about it. And so he proclaims, he gives proclamation, says he proclaimed the word, which is the next slide from Jai. Um, what does that mean? If I were to say to you that someone had proclaimed the Christ, what, what would that mean to you? What, what, what would those words say to you? We don't exactly know everything that Philip said at that point. He probably preached for quite a while. But we, I think it would be safe to say that there were certain things, certain core things that he would have taught the Samaritans at that point when he thinks about proclaiming the Christ. He would have told them that Jesus was the Son of God. He would have said that. Yeah. And he would have said that Jesus' life was important because unlike all of us, he'd lived a life that was perfect, a life that was without uh, no wrongdoing, no rebellion, no wrong thought, nothing. I think it would be safe to say that Philip told them that his death was important. Jesus' death was important because by dying, he paid for all of our wrongdoing, all of our rebellion and all of our wrong thinking. 
Philip would have told them that Jesus had risen from the dead and that that was important because it showed that God was satisfied that Jesus had paid for our sins and he was prepared to see those who believed in his son as being forgiven. And Philip would have told them that their only response to those facts, the only sensible response to those facts that makes any sense would be for them to put their trust in Jesus and to try living a life that was pleasing to Jesus. And that would be Philip's message to you if he was standing here today. He would include those words. He would say that to you. It's the same message. It's the same message from 2,000 years ago. And crowds heard it. Lots of people, look in verse 6. Crowds heard what he was saying. And he starts to break down this bridge, this bridge that you may have heard about between Jews and Samaritans, between Jews and Gentiles. At this point, the Jews think of the Samaritans as heretics, as, as lowest of the low, as dogs. There's a real cultural switch going on here because up until this point, the church has all been about Jews. Jews from different backgrounds, different places, but, but people who had the Jewish faith. So Philip does some miraculous signs, verse 6. Do you remember what Ian taught us about miraculous signs a, a few weeks ago? How uh, they're not the usual way in which the gospel has been spread. But this is a significant moment in church history. There's an awful lot going on in this passage. And as this, this bridge is being built between Jerusalem and Samaria, between the Jews and the Samaritans, miracles are going on. They're going to show that the Jews that this is the work of God and approved by God and also going to show the Samaritans to come into the church and to believe in God. And many of them did approve, it says. Again, look, many of them are healed and have demons driven out of them. And there's great rejoicing. There's great scene of, yeah, all this stuff going on. Verse 9, Simon comes into the story. Here's an interesting guy. What are we told about him? Well, as I said, he's a spiritual leader. Some standing, he's been doing this thing for a long time. He practices sorcery. We're not necessarily comfortable with that in the modern, modern world, the idea of sorcery. Sorcery. Was it, and we say to ourselves, well, was it just a first century Paul Daniels? You know, was he just doing a bit of, you know, pulling cards out of his sleeve, you know, and flowers and all that kind of stuff. It does seem to imply there's some power here not of his own. It does seem to imply that there is something demonic going on here. But the Samaritans, they thought he was great. And lots of them were following him. Everyone follows something. Even if it's just their own bank account, their own pleasure, their own family. These folks were following someone who was being held out as having this great power, this wonderful power. We don't know what it was, but it looks like they they thought of Simon as being a demigod, a a divine person of some kind. And do you notice here? Do you notice he didn't deny that? He didn't say, oh no, no, it's just a few cards coming out of my sleeve or, or whatever it was. He didn't deny that at all. He actually played on it. He boasted, it says. This is something he pursued, something that he wanted. I would suggest he must have known that this was not 
what it was held out to be. What are we following? What are we following other than God? Is there something that we're putting before God, perhaps another spiritual leader? Relative, our status, our job, our money? Who do we attribute great power to? That phrase there, great power. At what point does that become an idol, ascribing that kind of power to something? Sports stars? Sheffield Wednesday did well. Uh, TV evangelists? Your mum, your brother, your friend? Ian Jones? Rich Proctor? Put your trust in Jesus. Nowhere else. That's where it belongs. And we can see that because the real McCoy turns up. Philip turns up. And he does real miracles and he preaches the truth. He preaches the gospel. And people, this is great, this, people realised that what Simon was doing wasn't the right thing. It wasn't the, the full deal. Philip comes along, he tells them the gospel, he tells them the truth. And so people recognise that and so they believe in him, in Jesus, and they are baptised. Incredible, brilliant. Even Simon himself, the guy who's been peddling this thing, even he recognises it and believes it. What a turnaround. Brilliant. Now there's some question, when you read the rest of the story, there's some question amongst commentators as to whether he was really a genuine believer or whether he was just putting it on because it was a popular thing of the time. I would suggest that he was a, he was a genuine believer. There's no reason given in Luke when, when he says that he believed that, he, that it wasn't genuine. I hope that he did genuinely believe and he did genuinely repent at the end of the story in verse 24. Well, we do know whether, whether he was a genuine believer or not. We do know he followed Philip everywhere. He treated him like a mentor. He was astonished by the signs that Philip did. So even as a, a genuine believer or even as a fraud, he knows that the real thing, the real thing is here, the real thing has arrived. So this is going on in Samaria. And the apostles are up in Jerusalem and they hear this is going on. Samaritans are believing the word of God and they're being baptised. Fantastic. So what do they do? They get on the road and they come down to Samaria, or two of them do anyway. And it's Peter and John who come down. Now there may be some significance that it's those two apostles that come down. There's 12 apostles up there, any of them could have come down I suppose. But it was John and Peter who came. Just turn in your Bible, just keep your finger where it is, and turn over to Luke chapter 9. Verse 51. Just keep your finger in there, Acts. Back a few pages. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Say Amen when you've got there. A ripple of Amens. I've had one Amen. Okay, yeah, we're getting there. So, look what's going on here. John, that's John who's come down to Samaria. John. In the, in the next few verses here, when uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's stopping and he's going. Uh, it uh, wants to stop in a Samaritan village. 
The villagers don't welcome Jesus. What does John say? He says, I want to call fire down on these guys. I want to burn this Samaritan village to the ground. Oops. I think Peter's inclusion in coming over to, to Samaria in Acts is so that he can see Samaritans in a different light. So he can see Samaritans not drawing back on that experience, but he can see them now as believers, people who are going to be in the church. And I think Peter's inclusion is also notable. notable. In Acts, uh, earlier on, Peter sets out for us the normal way in which believers receive the Holy Spirit. This is in Acts chapter 2. Let me read it for you. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptised. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter said that, and this is the same Peter who's now come down to Samaria. And what does he find? A group of Samaritans who did not receive the Holy who had not received the Holy Spirit when they believed. We'll come back to that in a minute. But I think that's significant because he's the man who said that earlier on in Acts. As an aside, I think it's also worth noticing an, an, an encouragement for us that, that God decides who's going to be involved when people are converted. Philip's proclaimed the word, Peter and John are involved as well. It's important they were all involved because of this barrier breaking down going on, if there is such a word, between the Jews and the Samaritans. John and Peter are the leaders of the church. They're the, they're the guys who are at the top by them being there, apart, I think it's fair to say, that God is showing, yes, this is, don't have any doubt that this is of me. Don't have any doubt that this is, this, this conversion of the Samaritans is something that, that is in accordance with my will. It's also interesting that John and Peter didn't wait to be asked to come down. Philip didn't object when they came down. No one was getting very precious about it. No one was getting upset about it. They all understood that this was God's work they were about, not their own. So when we're, when we're thinking about this part now, this sort of verse 14 and onwards, as I said, we've got a, a situation where the Holy Spirit is not received straight away when people believe. What is all that about? What is going on here? Well... Just recap, remember, Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons who make up God in the Trinity. He's sent from heaven to show us who Jesus really is, to complete the work of, of being saved in us. He shows believers when we're wrong and gives us a true understanding of the Bible. What else does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit lives and is present in all believers and helps us to increase in likeness to Christ. One of the Holy Spirit's job is he builds up the church, and he empowers its members with gifts, so that we can worship together and serve each other, and go on mission together. So, so Holy Spirit, okay. But why were these Samaritans not receiving it straight away? Well, there's three views, three views to put forward, and then I'll, I'll tell you which one I would suggest to you. First view is that this is normal. 
This is the normal way in which people are converted. That first of all they're baptised by water and then later by the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands by some religious person in a a church or an organisation. And there's some people, some Christians who believe that. Uh, Another view is that they did receive the Holy Spirit when they believed and that what's happening in here with this laying on of hand is some kind of topping up of the Holy Spirit or, or giving them gifts that they didn't already have or, or giving them the last 1% or something like that going on there. And again, there's Christians who believe that. The third explanation that's put forward is that this particular moment is a unique historical moment in the history of the church. And that this is not the normal method in which people are saved. This is not the normal method in which people uh, receive the Holy Spirit. This is not the normal way in which the Holy Spirit acts. And I would suggest to you that that is the case, that that is the right interpretation. Why do I say that? Because everywhere else we see the pattern of conversion where you believe and you get the Holy Spirit. That pattern, someone proclaims the good news, talks about proclaiming, someone says what the gospel is, people hear it, people play close attention, they believe it, they put their trust in God, they repent of their sins, and at that point, they're a Christian. Bang. Done. At that point, they receive the Holy Spirit. Baptism and joining a church and all those kind of stuff are things we do in obedience, but remember, they are nothing to do with us being saved. They do not make you a Christian. You're Christian when you believe, you put your faith in Christ, and you repent. So, so okay, okay, if that is true, Ian, fair enough, but why do we see a different pattern here in Acts 8? What's that all about? Why do Peter and John come to inspect these conversions and realise the Holy Spirit isn't there? Well, as we said, these weren't Jews who were being converted. These were the reviled Samaritans, the despised Samaritans. Would Jews have believed, back in Jerusalem or wherever they've been spread to, would Jews have believed that Samaritans could become Christians without something dramatic, without something really big happening, without John and Peter, the leaders of the church, being there? As the Samaritans understood, would they really have believed that they could join with Jews, these people who they knew hated them? Would they have believed that they could actually become part of this church, that they could become adopted as God's children with the Jews without something dramatic? We do see from time to time in two or three places in Acts sort of dramatic acts of the Holy Spirit that indicate these big changes in the church. And this is one. This is one where this laying on of hands and this, the, the Holy Spirit coming in there is saying, yes, this is God's will. Yes, the church is growing. Yes, Jesus said, you're going to go to Judea and Samaria to be my witnesses, and that has happened. That's why we've got this two-stage thing going on with the Holy Spirit. Full of meaning for the Jews. Full of meaning for the Samaritans. Full of meaning for the apostles, for John and Peter, like we said earlier. It was only a delay in the action of the Holy Spirit for that reason. Do not expect to see that today. 
There are no apostles. There are no Samaritans in this way. They've been converted. So that is why you would see this happening only at this time. Let me also just pause at this point just before we go on to say that when Christians read a passage like this, they can, obvious, they can often ask a question like, well, have I really got the Holy Spirit myself? Am I, am I really, really saved? I mean, you know, I think I believe in God and, and I've repented of my sins, but do I really have the Holy Spirit? And those are good questions. And those are very common questions. There's a whole sermon series that could be done on that, that subject. But let me just give you a few ways in which I believe you, you could have reassurance that you've had the Holy Spirit. People have the Holy Spirit, love God. People who've got the Holy Spirit, love his church. If you love God and you love church, that is a sign that you have the Holy Spirit. When you read the Bible, you'll get a clear sense of what God means. Remember, that's one of the Holy Spirit's job. He shows us what the Bible means. And so if you, if you, get that, you read a passage and you go, well, that's what it means. That's the Holy Spirit helping you to do that. You increasingly, you want to obey God's commands for your life. And that might include doing things that the world thinks are pretty crazy and pretty mad. And doing things that, if you're honest with yourself, you might think are pretty crazy and pretty mad. But you think that's what God wants me to do. And so I want to do it. You want to live your life in a way that's pleasing to God and which puts your, prayer, your priorities later. That's a sign that you've got the Holy Spirit. Do you love your Christian brothers and sisters? Let's face it, we're all pretty different. Some of us, like myself, are very different. We've got nothing else in common sometimes than our faith. And yet we want to be together. We want to care for each other. We want to love each other. We want to see each other grow in faith. Perhaps even people who, before we became Christians, we would have despised and hated ourselves like the Jews hated the Samaritans. How else might you know you have the Holy Spirit? You start to show the, what's called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, these are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They begin to grow in us. That's why they're called fruit, because fruit grow. It doesn't just happen. Fruit doesn't, you just go, bing, it's an apple. An apple grows, and so fruit grows in us. People will see this in us. They'll comment it on us. They'll say, oh, you are kind, you are good. That's the Holy Spirit in you. There's much more to be said on that. And again, when the slide comes up at the end and says, text your questions, uh, that's, those kind of questions, I think, are ones that are really important if they're on your heart. Still to Ian or, or reach about. But let's say that Simon was a genuine believer. He's committed a sin, and we can see here what that sin is. He tries to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not much of a gift, because bear in mind what we just said. It's only going to happen this one time anyway. So what's the point in trying to buy it? But he doesn't know that. So this is where the slide says, priceless. Priceless. 
Simon sees an opportunity to turn his faith into a little bit of, what, maybe money? A little commercial operation going on? Holy Spirit, £10? Buy one, get one free? Don't know. Uh, could be a power thing. You know, that feeling of, yeah, I've got this power of the Holy Spirit. We don't know. Certainly, he's looking for to buy it. And there's a line here, isn't there, between in our faith in terms of what is about how do we use money? Do we use it to cover costs? Do we use it to facilitate ministries? Do we do it to pay people who deserve a living wage? Or are we out to make a profit? Are we out to promote ourselves? So there's something going on there. There's a line there. And the line's drawn in our hearts. And the line's drawn in the hearts of the people who are observing us. But the gift Peter refers to, look, he calls it a gift there in verse 20. He doesn't mean it's a gift from God, which is priceless. He means that God is the gift and he is priceless. The gift of salvation through Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that gift, that that Holy Spirit that dwells inside us, cannot be bought, it cannot be earned. It is priceless. Being saved through our faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit is priceless in two ways. One of those ways we've just seen with Simon here. He says, you can't buy it. We can't buy it, Peter says to him. There's no price that can, there's no money, there's not enough money to buy this thing. And that's why it becomes to us as a free gift. We can't buy it and we sell it because it's free. It's a free gift. But also, on the next slide, you'll see that it's priceless because the value of it is so enormous. The old hymn, there's an old hymn that says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Or than to be the king of a vast domain. Being saved doesn't make our life an experience free from trouble or pain. No, that's true. They're still going to come, maybe even more so but we see them measured up against God's great gift and we realise that they're smaller all of a sudden. The Holy Spirit being saved, there is no money you can exchange for this. It is is a free gift. It is too big. But somebody had to pay the price. Somebody had to pay that price. And it has been paid for. And it's, we couldn't afford it. We could never even begin to understand how to pay it. But it's been paid for by Jesus. Only God could pay such a bill. Only he's got the resources. Only he's got enough to pay that bill. That thing that Simon tried to buy. And so you might ask, well, how do I get it? If it's that valuable, how can anyone afford it? It's free. It's free. It's free. It is free if you put your trust in Jesus. Free if you say, yes, I'll try and live my life the way he would want me to. If you say that in your heart today, then you will be saved. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Do not miss out on this gift.
Jesus has paid for it for you. If it's something that valuable, why would you not want it? If you had, if you had a cure for cancer, wouldn't you want to tell everyone about it? Wouldn't you want to know about it? This is a free gift. Accept it, please. And there are many other gifts from God that are priceless. Why not try and list them out for yourself? All the things that, you get, that God gives us that are priceless, there are many. We should move to the end. Peter and John, they stay and further proclaim the word here in Samaria. Not just cutting out and leaving, making sure the disciples here, these new disciples, getting taught, getting trained up. And then they head back to Jerusalem, visiting many Samaritan villages. Can you imagine how they feel about that now, having had this experience in, in this first Samaritan city? And yeah, these are people we can bring into the kingdom of God. Can you imagine being in a place where you've heard this kind of teaching? If you've heard John and Peter and Philip. Can you imagine if you'd heard that? The people who walked and talked actually with Jesus. What an experience. What a privilege. Folks, we've heard about the words of Jesus. We've heard of his miracles. We've heard of his signs. We've heard the kind of things Philip's would say to us. We've heard what the Holy Spirit would do. We have been given a mission. Those of us who believe we've been given a mission to go out from the living God and to tell the world about these experiences. And that is an experience. And that is a privilege. And we're thankful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit which shows us what your word means and what it says. Thank you for the Holy Spirit given to us to help us to live lives more like yours. The Holy Spirit to help us to build the church up so we could serve each other. Holy Spirit, which is such a personal thing, such a personal presence for us. Heavenly Father, give us the words, give us the right words to tell the world about what you have done, to tell the world about this priceless gift, to tell the world that you are a gift of beyond an ability to describe it in terms of value and help them to see their need of this gift. Amen.